Section 64 of Chesterfield's Letters to His Son. Read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Letter 95. London, December 12th, Old Style, 1749. Dear Boy, Lord Clarendon, in his history, says of Mr. John Hampton that he had a head to contrive, a tongue to persuade, and a hand to execute any mischief. I shall not now enter into the justness of this character of Mr. Hampton, to whose brave stand against the illegal demand of ship-money we owe our present liberties. But I mention it to you as the character, which, with the alteration of one single word, good, instead of mischief, I would have you aspire to, and use your utmost endeavours to deserve. The head to contrive, God must to a certain degree have given you, but it is in your own power greatly to improve it, by study, observation, and reflection. As for the tongue to persuade, it wholly depends upon yourself, and without it the best head will contrive to very little purpose. The hand to execute depends likewise, in my opinion, in a great measure upon yourself. Serious reflection will always give courage in a good cause, and the courage arising from reflection is of much a superior nature to the animal and constitutional courage of a foot-soldier. The former is steady and unshaken, where the notice is dignus vindis, the latter is oftener improperly than properly exerted, but always brutally. The second member of my text, to speak ecclesiastically, shall be the subject of my following discourse, the tongue to persuade, as judicious preachers recommend those virtues, which they think their several audiences want the most, such as truth and continence at court, disinterestedness in the city, and sobriety in the country. You must certainly, in the course of your little experience, have felt the different effects of elegant and inelegant speaking. Do you not suffer, when people accost you in a stammering or hesitating manner, in an untuneful voice, with false accents and cadences, puzzling and blundering through solecisms, barbarisms, and vulgarisms, misplacing even their bad words, and inverting all method? Does not this prejudice you against their matter, be it what it will, nay, even against their persons? I am sure it does me. On the other hand, do you not feel yourself inclined, prepossessed, nay, even engaged in favour of those who address you in the direct, contrary manner? The effects of a correct and adorned style of method and perspicuity are incredible toward persuasion. They often supply the want of reason and argument. But when used in the support of reason and argument, they are irresistible. The French attend very much to the purity and elegance of their style, even in common conversation, insomuch that it is a character to say of a man, qu'il n'a bien. Their conversations frequently turn upon the delicacies of their language, and an academy is employed in fixing it. The Crisca in Italy has the same object, and I have met with very few Italians who did not speak their own language correctly and elegantly. How much more necessary is it for an Englishman to do so, who is to speak it in a public assembly, where the laws and liberties of his country are the subject of his deliberation? The tongue that would persuade there must not content itself with mere articulation. You know what pains Demosthenes took to correct his naturally bad elocution. You know that he declaimed by the seaside in storms, to prepare himself for the noise of the tumultuous assemblies he was to speak to. And you can now judge of the correctness and elegance of his style. He thought all these things of consequence, and he thought right. Pray, do you think so too? It is of the utmost consequence to you to be of that opinion." If you have the least defect in your elocution, take the utmost care and pains to correct it. Do not neglect your style, 
whatever language you speak in, or whoever you speak to, were it your footman. Seek always for the best words and the happiest expressions you can find. Do not content yourself with being barely understood, but adorn your thoughts, and dress them as you would your person, which, however well proportioned it might be, it would be very improper and indecent to exhibit naked, or even worse dressed than people of your sort are. I have sent you in a packet which your Leipzig acquaintance Duval sends to his correspondent at Rome, Lord Bolingbroke's book, Letters on the Spirit of Patriotism, on the idea of a patriot king which he published about a year ago. I desire that you will read it over and over again, with particular attention to the style, and to all those beauties of oratory with which it is adorned. Till I read that book, I confess I did not know all the extent and powers of the English language. Lord Bolingbroke has both a tongue and a pen to persuade. His manner of speaking in private conversation is full as elegant as his writings. Whatever subject he either speaks or writes upon, he adorns with the most splendid eloquence, not a studied or a labored eloquence, but such a flowing happiness of diction, which, from care perhaps at first, is become so habitual to him, that even his most familiar conversations, if taken down in writing, would bear the press, without the least correction either as to method or style. If his conduct, in the former part of his life, had been equal to all his natural and acquired talents, he would most justly have merited the epithet of all accomplished. He is himself sensible of his past errors. Those violent passions which seduced him in his youth have now subsided by age, and take him as he is now, the character of an all-accomplished is more his due than any man's I ever knew in my life. But he has been a most mortifying instance of the violence of human passions, and of the weakness of the most exalted human reason. His virtues and his vices, his reason and his passions, did not blend themselves by a graduation of tints, but formed a shining and sudden contrast. Here the darkest, the most splendid colors, and both rendered more shining from their proximity. Impetuosity, excess, and almost extravagance characterize not only his passions, but even his senses. His youth was distinguished by all the tumult and storm of pleasures, in which he most licentiously triumphed, disdaining all decorum. His fine imagination has often been heated and exhausted, with his body, in celebrating and deifying the prostitute of the night, and his convivial joys were pushed to all the extravagance of frantic bacchanals. Those passions were interrupted, but by a stronger ambition. The former impaired both his constitution and his character, but the latter destroyed both his fortune and his reputation. He has noble and generous sentiments, rather than fixed, reflected principles of good nature and friendship, but they are more violent than lasting, and suddenly and often varied to their opposite extremes, with regard to the same persons. He receives the common attentions of civility as obligations, which he returns with interest, and resents with passion the little inadvertencies of human nature, which he repays with interest too. Even a difference of opinion upon a philosophical subject would provoke, and prove him no practical philosopher at least. Notwithstanding the dissipation of his youth, and the tumultuous agitation of his middle age, he has an infinite fund of various and almost universal knowledge, which from the clearest and quickest conception, and happiest memory, that ever man was blessed with, he always carries about him. It is his pocket-money, and he never has occasion to draw upon a book for any sum. He excels more particularly in history, as his historical works plainly prove. 
the relative political and commercial interests of every country in Europe, particularly of his own, are better known to him than perhaps to any man in it. But how steadily he has pursued the latter in his public conduct, his enemies, of all parties and denominations, tell with joy. He engaged young and distinguished himself in business, and his penetration was almost intuition. I am old enough to have heard him speak in Parliament. And I remember that, though prejudiced against him by party, I felt all the force and charms of his eloquence. Like Belial in Milton, he made the worse appear the better cause. All the internal and external advantages and talents of an orator are undoubtedly his. Figure, voice, elocution, knowledge, and above all, the purest and most florid diction, with the justest metaphors and happiest images, had raised him to the post of secretary at war at twenty-four years old, an age at which others are hardly thought fit for the smallest employments. During his long exile in France, he applied himself to study with his characteristical ardor, and there he formed and chiefly executed the plan of a great philosophical work. The common bonds of human knowledge are too narrow for his warm and aspiring imagination. He must go extra flamantia mania mundi, and explore the unknown and unknowable regions of metaphysics, which open an unbounded field for the excursion of an ardent imagination, where endless conjectures supply the defect of unattainable knowledge, and too often usurp both its name and its influence. He has had a very handsome person, with a most engaging address in his air and manners. He has all the dignity and good breeding which a man of quality should or can have, and which so few in this country at least really have. He professes himself a deist, believing in a general providence, but doubting of, though by no means rejecting, as is commonly supposed, the immortality of the soul and a future state. Upon the whole of this extraordinary man, what can we say but, alas, poor human nature? In your destination you will have frequent occasion to speak in public, to princes and states abroad, to the House of Commons at home. Judge, then, whether eloquence is necessary for you or not." not only common eloquence, which is rather free from faults than adorned by beauties, but the highest, the most shining degree of eloquence. For God's sake, have this object always in your view and in your thoughts. Tune your tongue early to persuasion, and let no jarring, dissonant accents ever fall from it. Contract a habit of speaking well upon every occasion, and neglect yourself in no one. Eloquence and good breeding alone will carry an exceeding small degree of parts and knowledge, will carry a man a great way. With your parts and knowledge, then, how far will they not carry you? Adieu. End of section 64. Read by Professor Heather and By. For more free audiobooks or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org.